the water of life is emblematic throughout the Old and in the Revelation of living water, of spiritual life that God gives His people. And so how magnificent that water in one of the emblems for the Spirit is not only oil and fire, but water that he would have water flowing from his throne. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're in a study of the book of Revelation, and today we move into the final chapter, chapter 22. Although this is the last chapter, we'll still have six or so messages as there's much material to cover in this last part of the book. In chapter 21, we were introduced by an angel to the new Jerusalem that will be the capital city of the new earth that God creates after burning up the old earth. In this new Jerusalem, the angel gives a vivid description of what will be an amazing place. As we move into the final chapter, the description continues, and the angel spends some time talking about the river of the water of life. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy. Here in 22.1, we're dealing with the same angel, and he's continuing the tour of the New Jerusalem. Notice the words, then he. Some of your Bibles say the angel, though the word angel is not in the original. That's an interpretive decision that the ESV does. It's just a pronoun. Then he showed me, but he's referring to the angel, so they're right in that. Then he showed me. So this again is indicating a break in the description in the New Jerusalem. He's going to show him some things that he had not previously shown him. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, if you buy a house today, ever before you show up for the property, you can go online and you can look at the house. They've got drones that will show you what the yard looks like, and unless it's embarrassing to the realtor, they'll typically show you the houses around it or what the neighborhood is like. But not only do you get to see the outside of the house, they'll give you an interior tour. And that's what this angel is doing. Now, he's not selling anything. You can't buy your way to heaven. It's the gift of God. But he's giving John, and by extension, you and I, a picture of what this place, heaven, is like that God wants all of us to go. One teacher was teaching her five-year-old class about heaven and what it takes to get there, and so she decided to test the class one Sunday. She said, if I sold my house and I sold my car, I sold all my furniture at a big garage sale and gave all the money to the church, would that get me to heaven? And all the five-year-olds said, no. Then she said, well, if I cleaned the church every day, if I mowed the lawn every week, kept everything here nice and tidy, would that get me into heaven? And all the children in unison said, no. The teacher thought these kids were beginning to get it. So then she asked, what if I'm kind to my neighbor and kind to animals, and I give candy to you as children, and I love my husband, would that help get me into heaven? And all the kids say, said, no. Then she said, then what do I need to do to get into heaven? One little five-year-old boy says, you got to be dead. (laughs) Well, he had it right. But there's two exceptions in the Bible. Don't tell me you died and went to heaven because you did not. You may have been light in oxygen, but you didn't die and go to heaven. It's appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. So don't buy these nonsensical trash books that even evangelical publishers like Lifeway and Tyndale are producing on heaven. 
But there are two people who saw heaven and then told us about it. One is the Apostle Paul, and the other is the Apostle John, and they wrote it down for us to learn. Then he, this angel, showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from or flowing from, as some translations say, the throne of God. Now, there's no reason to take this river purely as symbolic. This clearly is a literal river. But as we will see in the Revelation and throughout the rest of the Scripture, this literal river also has great spiritual and symbolic meaning. Now, out of the throne of God flows this crystal clear water, and how appropriate, because God is holy and pure, and so you'd only expect the clearest of all water. Now, I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of popular books that are being written today on heaven. And unfortunately, many of those books are being written by people who call themselves members of the Reformed faith. Now, if you asked me if I was Reformed, I'd say, of course I am. Just like if you asked me if I was charismatic, I'd say, of course I am. But you see, definition is everything. Some of our brothers have robbed the term charismatic to refer just to the sign gifts. Yet every Christian should be a charismatic Christian and that God gave you at the day of your conversion a gift. Not one of the sign gifts. Those are no longer being given. But he gave you the gift of teaching or exhortation or mercy or help, some spiritual gift for you to serve in the body of Christ. Likewise, the term reformed has been robbed by some of our brothers who call themselves amillennialists, They believe in replacement theology. They say there's no future for the nation of Israel. And it came out of Augustine into Catholicism, and then some of the men who were saved out of Catholicism like Luther and Calvin and so on. But listen, God's not done with Israel. God used Israel to bring the first coming of the Messiah, and he'll bring them, use them to bring the second coming of the Messiah. So when they come to these passages in the Old Testament, that deal with the promises made to Israel in the kingdom where the Messiah will literally actually reign on the earth? They say, well, that must be heaven. Why? Because in their mind, there is no future for Israel. Now, certainly, there are some parallels between the millennial earth when Jesus rules for a thousand years. The fact that he'll rule is an Old Testament truth. The length of that rule is revealed in the New Testament. There's parallels between his rule on earth and heaven. A lot of parallels, but the two are clearly, clearly different. I mean, think your way through this. Um, We've already learned in Revelation 21 that there's no sea in the new earth. And yet when you come to some of the millennial passages in the Old Testament that people say are descriptive of heaven, there is a sea. And so they'll take this paragraph and they'll skip this paragraph and they'll take this one and skip this one. Let me give you an example. The prophets Ezekiel and the prophet Zechariah both describe, by the way, a river. A river during the millennial reign of the Messiah that will flow from a different throne. Not the throne in heaven, as we'll see in a moment but the throne where Jesus will rule on the earth for a thousand years. If you go to Israel and you stand on the Mount of Olives, you see that magnificent 36-acre platform we call the Temple Mount. That's the place that Jesus will rule from. It won't look like that then, I promise you. But there will be a river that will flow from the Temple Mount, the Bible teaches, all the way down to the Dead Sea. Let me read, for instance, a passage from Ezekiel. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. For the house faced east. 
and the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. Now, this is not some temple in heaven. As you read that chapter, go home and read the whole thing. It's the Temple Mount, and there's a river that comes from it. Then he said to me in verse 8, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. That's where the Dead Sea is. Then they go toward the sea, speaking of the Dead Sea, also called the Salt Sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea become fresh. And it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there, and the others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it, from Engedi to uh, any gleam. Those are two towns, so to speak, along the Dead Sea. There will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. Now, this is not a prophecy of heaven. How do we know? It can't be. Revelation 21.1 says, in the new heaven and the new earth, there is no sea. Now, that doesn't mean there's not water. It doesn't mean there won't be beautiful beaches, but salt is a corrosive product, and for whatever reason, in the providence of God, there is not going to be a sea like we know it today. But here in this millennial earth, there is going to be a river that will flow from the Temple Mount all the way down to the Dead Sea. Now, here's a picture of the Dead Sea, and it looks very white where the waters receded because they're using the waters of the Jordan to irrigate so much of Israel. The sea is shrinking in many ways. And that white around there is not waves or foam. That's salt. That is pure salt. The Dead Sea is 8.6 times saltier than any sea in the ocean. The salinity is so great, there's no animals anywhere around here. There's no life in the Dead Sea, not even microscopic life. Now, there have been a few places where some holes have been dug and fresh water has filled it, and there has been some small traces of life, but in the sea itself, absolutely nothing can live. And here is a photo that caught my attention on one trip. I mean, just these massive amounts of salt just kind of build themselves up, and they create these little mini sea mountains, so to speak. This has never been fulfilled where the water from the Temple Mount going all the way to the Dead Sea is going to make that sea so alive, a place where nothing lives, where men will fish in it and dry their nets along the shores. How did God fulfill the prophecy for the first coming? Literally. So you can't pick and choose. Some of the passages in so many of these books on heaven have nothing to do with heaven. They have everything to do with the reign of the Messiah. So here we are back in Revelation 21, verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life. Notice clear. It's the Greek word krustalos. There's words that we transliterate where you take the original and the sound and you put it directly into English. Like in the first service, we baptize baptizo, so ba, be, and so forth. And you transliterate it. And some words perfectly transliterate. This one near perfect, crystalos, we get our word crystal from it. In other words, this mighty river coming, not from the Temple Mount, but the throne of God in heaven is sparkling, it's shimmering, it's crystal clear. Second, John notes the river originates from the throne of God. He showed me a river of the water coming or flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, that's interesting because back in the original creation in the Garden of Eden, Moses wrote, now a river flowed out of Eden to the water 
to water the garden. God was in need, and he had a river that flowed there. Then during the millennial kingdom, we just read of a river that will flow from the throne room on the Temple Mount from which the Messiah will rule and reign. And now here in the throne room of God, there is a river. Now, many of you have stood like I have at the mighty Mississippi River, and it's somewhat breathtaking. One dear brother back there told me he floated down the Colorado River. I've always wanted to see the Amazon River, but like many of you, I've been to the bottom of the Niagara, and that little boat they take you out on, and the mighty power of that water just rushing and tumulting down there into that river is just breathtaking. But I want to tell you this literal river that we are reading of today, there's absolutely nothing like it on earth. If you remember when we studied the outside of this city, God gave us some dimensions of what the city will be like. Let me give you a comparison on this next picture. If you remember over there in the far right, I gave you a picture of it earlier in full. That's supposed to represent the tallest building in the world, 2,717 feet there in Dubai. Then to the left of that, that's supposed to represent the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest, 29,029 feet above sea level. You take the tallest building in the world, you take the tallest mountain in the world, and you put it next to the tallest city in the world, the New Jerusalem, which goes 15 miles high into the sky. It's breathtaking. And we examined and thought a little bit in our last study on heaven just about the greatness of God's creation and how big it is and how vast it is. And when they took that Hummel telescope and shot it out into space, what Einstein thought was true, they saw with the naked eye. Billions of universes, so to speak, galaxy upon galaxy upon galaxy. And so God is a great God, and while the universe today shouts death because sin has entered into it, God is going to make a new universe, and the new Jerusalem, this mighty city, 15 miles high in the sky, and from the top of the throne where God is, the water will cascade down and down and down. This will be so spectacular, so magnificent. When I was in college, I visited a few of the national parks. I haven't seen them all, but I saw a few that I wanted to see. And it was some of the most breathtaking and beautiful scenery I've ever seen anywhere on the planet. But I want to tell you that even though Psalm 19 says the, the, the heavens are declaring the glory of God and the works of his hands are an expression of his greatness, we haven't seen anything yet. We live in a fallen creation, and even the most magnificent scene you can lay your eyes upon will not compare to what God is going to create or what he has created and what you will see. The psalmist centuries before, speaking of this river, wrote, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, she'll not be moved. Now beyond the physical side of this river, there's a spiritual dimension to it. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And so the water of life is emblematic throughout the Old and in the Revelation of living water, of spiritual life that God gives his people. And so how magnificent that water in one of the emblems for the Spirit is not only oil and fire, but water, that he would have water flowing from his throne. 
And so as you read the prophets, you discover that they use water as a picture of salvation. For instance, in Isaiah 55 in verse one, God invites his people to drink. He says, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. And knowing our need, Isaiah then says, why do you spend money for what is not bread? and your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Some of you this morning would do well to listen to what Isaiah says because you're drinking from the wrong watering holes and you're eating from the wrong troughs and God wants you to come to the bread of life and by the Spirit of God, he wants to give you living water. Hold your finger here and turn to another book that this man wrote, the Gospel of John, and go to John chapter four. John chapter four for a moment. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, it's the fourth book in the New Testament. And Christ meets a woman at a place called Jacob's Well. A few months ago, I stood there before the group came over and uh, you're in a little town called Nablus and and you look down, and there's Jacob's well, and not 50 yards from it, it's a class A archaeological spot. No doubt, did it happen here? Did it happen near here? No, it happened right there. There's Jacob's well, and there's Joseph's tomb buried just 50 yards away. And it was, and, and this is, by the way, the same place. It's called in the Old Testament Shechem, when Abraham had traveled 1,100 miles, not knowing where he was going, except that God would show him. When he ends up in Shechem, God appeared to him. It all happened in this one little location. And here the Lord meets this Samaritan woman, a member of a despised race. Look at verse uh, 10 of this chapter. Jesus answered and he said to this woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now this woman obviously did not know whom she was speaking to because Jesus said if she knew whom she was speaking to, she would have asked him for the gift of God, which is described here as a kind of water. If you knew the gift of God, what is the gift of God? Well, Paul says in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Tonight, a new season on Awana begins. And I fear some of us are just too lazy on Sunday nights to bring our children back. Look, there's a lot that's vying for your child's heart today. Evil is walking into some of your homes and evil is getting in through the internet in some of the hearts of your kids. You need to protect them from that, but more than that, you need to feed them with truth. Some of you could use this as a date night tonight, and some of your ladies would appreciate that. But for instance, they memorize Romans 6.23. But not only do they memorize the verse, they memorize the meaning to the verse. What is a wage? They have to learn the definition. What is sin? What is death? What is eternal life? And you'll get this scripture deep into the hearts of your children. The free gift of God is eternal life. So here is the eternal God offering eternal life described here as living water. And the syntax in Greek, the emphasis is on living. Paraphrase, he would have offered you water. I mean the living kind. And it's important for us to understand how the Bible uses living water because it's used to describe a relationship, a personal relationship that God wants to have with you this morning. Put out in the margin next to verse 10, Jeremiah 2, 3. Jeremiah 2 and verse 3. Let me read to you from the prophet Jeremiah. 
God says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to you for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So the people in Jeremiah's day had forsaken God for idols, and God compares them in this verse, their idolatry to exchanging fresh living water for the stagnant, leaking cisterns that they had created. And of course, John will write in chapter 22 and verse 1, he compares the relationship you have when you're saved to living water. And so the trades that Satan will try to convince you to make, to take the stagnant, polluted waters of the world for the fresh living water that God wants you to know this morning. And this Samaritan woman is a classic example. She was looking for love in all the wrong places, married five times, and she was on her sixth guy. She wanted joy and happiness. And so the Lord is trying to teach her that what water is to your body, I want to be to your spirit. And of course, there's a double entendre here. And the Samaritan woman, understandably, is somewhat confused. And so Jesus says in verse 13, Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. Now listen to verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst, but the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to life eternal, to eternal life. To paraphrase, whoever drinks of this material water, anything the world has to offer you, you'll get thirsty and thirsty and thirsty again. You'll always be looking for the next high to satisfy. But whoever takes just one drink of this water, he'll never thirst again. Oh, the cheap substitutes that the devil offers for God's living water. And I believe this morning... And what I am preaching, because I've been to that living water, and I am a satisfied customer, I want to tell you that he will satisfy the deepest depths of your heart where you'll only want more of him. And so he speaks of a well of water springing up to eternal life. And yet the world will offer you its water. And I want to tell you, if your heart this morning is only for the water of the world... It means you've never been to Jesus. If your heart clamors after what the world has to offer, you've never met him because your life takes on a new direction when you are born from above. In John 7, put that out in the margin, John 7, 36, and let me just read it to you. It's a particular holiday, a festival in Israel's history, and it's a sermon in itself, and I've preached the whole Gospel of John. You might want to listen to that message. But on the last day of that great feast, Jesus stood up and he said, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom John says was not yet given because Christ had not yet been glorified. So just like in Revelation 22 and verse 1, there is a literal river cascading from the throne of God. It is representative and emblematic of the Spirit of God, who is the water of life. Now go back to Revelation 22 and verse 1. We learn that this living water, termed here the water of life, 
as we've just seen, is symbolic of the new birth of the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of you. In fact, three times in these two chapters, the water of life is mentioned. The first time is in 21.6. Let me refresh your mind. God the Father there says, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. By the way, that's the title that the Father takes to himself. But before we are done with this chapter, we will see, as we saw in chapter 1, that is a title the Son takes to himself. They take the same title. Why? Because to see the Son is to see the Father there equal. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And then when we come to chapter 22, verse 17, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the water of life without cost. And here in our verse, he showed me the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and from the Lamb. And so while someday we will literally actually see this river flowing from the throne of God that is emblematic of the Holy Spirit throughout Scripture, you can taste of this water today if you will come to Christ, and He will satisfy the deepest needs of your heart. And by the way, while we're here, this is a great Trinitarian picture because as the chapter goes on, and we'll study it when we come to the 16th and 17th verses, where living water is emblematic of God the Holy Spirit, you also find here two other members here in this throne room. Coming out from the throne of God, that's the Father, and of the Lamb, that's the Son. Now until now, when mentioning the Father and the Son, John has distinguished the Father from the Son who sits on the throne. So if you remember in chapter 5 and verse 13, we studied in every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory. No mention of Jesus on the throne. Or in Revelation 6.16, we examined it in detail. And they said to the mountains, these people who are alive during the tribulation and seen the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments fall on us and hide us from the presence of him. That's the Father who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Jesus is not on the throne in that verse. Or again in Revelation 7 and verse 10, we're told, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God. That's the Father who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. But now in Revelation 22 and verse 1, he puts both of them on the throne. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Two persons sitting on the throne, emblematically a third person. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God, whether it's Deuteronomy 6 or 1 Timothy 2 or James 2. God is one. Three and one, our kids sing. Three and one. Man in his finiteness cannot totally grasp it, but the truth is, is that the infinite God exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Again, this is foundational. We'll explain it in more detail. You've got to be here for the next six messages. Well, we've spent the better part of our half hour today looking exclusively at the river of life. And tomorrow when we conclude our message entitled Paradise Regained, we'll look at the tree of life mentioned in Revelation 22:2. To listen again to today's message or any of the sermons on the book of Revelation, as well as any other book taught by Dr. Brogy, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV66. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you can help sustain this ministry, use the Give button on our website, searchthescriptures.org, or in the Search the Scriptures app. Or call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow, the conclusion of Paradise Regained. Join us then as we search the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures.